Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 136, Defeating the Rulers. And in this episode, I want to kind of shift us in a direction that we're going to spend a couple of weeks in, and that is in the book of Ephesians. And when we talk about the rulers and the authorities, as we did at length last week when I read a chapter from Tim Bogombus's book, The Drama of Ephesians, it reminded me that the entire book of Ephesians is actually filled with all sorts of this kind of language. And Paul is doing something rather fascinating in the book, something that many people may overlook unless you think about the Bible as one unified story that points to Jesus, as the those on the Bible Project often refer to the Bible as. And what I want to do in this episode is tie a couple of things back to the very beginning of Genesis that we looked at on the podcast and then try to see if I can give you a broad overview of what Paul is doing in the book of Ephesians. And some of these themes I'm taking from Gombus's book and summarizing them in my own words. And a few other connections are things that I've seen over the years from other authors and from my own study which I want to help make clear to you. And so this won't be a very long episode, but it's going to set us up for conversation in the future. And Ephesians would be well worth your time to go read this week if you have the opportunity to do it. It's only six chapters long, 155 verses. It should take you less than 20 minutes to read through it in one sitting, which is not really a lot of time. So anyway, um, it's exciting to see what Paul is doing, the gift that he is bringing to us by tying together Jesus's work of defeating the rulers and what that means for the church as his new creation people, and ultimately what that means for the blessing of the world. So without any more of an introduction, let's just jump right in. One of the things that I love most about doing this podcast is the way that I have actually set the whole thing up. And Starting all the way back at the beginning of the podcast, we spent several weeks in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And again, one of the reasons why that makes me so excited is because those opening chapters set the stage for the kinds of questions and the kind of narrative structure and the kinds of themes that we should expect as readers of the Bible to see repeated over and over throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. And one of the exciting points I had about sharing that perspective with you at the beginning of the podcast was that I didn't grow up really focusing in on Genesis 1 and 2, and therefore I never saw many of those themes and narrative structures and subplots and ideas that would unfold through the rest of the Bible. And because I didn't, I would approach any one of those sections of the Bible that repeated some of the themes from Genesis 1 and 2, and I wouldn't see those themes. Instead, I would see something entirely different. And the book of Ephesians is kind of one of those that fits that description. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful New Testament letter that you can gain a lot of help from as a Christian. But if you know the themes that surface in the book of Genesis, when you approach Ephesians, it just pops. It just jumps out. It, it stands out in a way that, that could truly reshape and reform the church and the members of the church in a way that I think Paul ultimately intended it to do. And so 
What I want to do here is I'm a big picture person, as many of you know. I've discovered over the years by personality that I simply prefer to see the big picture first. I don't 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 hit me with a million details if I can't wrap my mind around the whole concept first and then dive into the details, I'll be lost from the get-go. And again, that's one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time talking about big, broad, sweeping themes in the Bible because I want to get the big picture first and then if we dive down into the details as long as we don't lose that big picture, We can spend as long as we want in the details as far as I'm concerned. But what I want to do on this episode is just remind you of the big picture and remind you of some things that Paul is doing in describing God's victory, God's triumph over the rulers in terms of creation and new creation. And we we know in Ephesians 4, if you're familiar with the book at all, we know that Paul refers to put off the old man, put off those behaviors that fit the old creation, and put on the new man, the new humanity that is befitting of the new creation. And so Jesus uh, has plenty to say about old creation, new creation, and, and Paul loves that language as well, which as a reader of the Bible Whenever you say the word new creation, your mind has to go back to the original creation. And that's how you have to understand what is happening in the new creation. And so I just want you to remember back if you can. Some of you could remember back to this because you've listened to the podcast from the beginning. Others of you may have not. And if you haven't, I would definitely encourage you to go back and re-listen. But if you remember back to Genesis 1 and 2, early on in the podcast, I'm talking the first first 12 um, episodes probably, um, was that we talked about the creation itself and what the narrative in Genesis was doing and how it was telling us the story. And that was that God was conquering the forces of darkness, the forces of chaos. And as was customary in the ancient Near East, when one nation conquered another nation, the people of the conquering nation, um, led by their king, no doubt, would erect a temple to their god in the newly conquered region. And then they would set up an idol or an image of their god in that temple. They did this so that the whole world could see the god who had claimed this space for himself and is now sharing it with the people who worship him. This was just a practice in the ancient Near East. In fact, we see this happening when David defeats his enemies all around him, but the Lord tells him that he has too much blood on his own hands, but that his son Solomon will build the temple for the Lord, this permanent resting place for the Lord established in the land that the people of God had had conquered and, and driven the enemies out of. I mean, this is a practice that we see Israel participating in, but this was a practice that all nations in the ancient Near East participated in. And so the, in Genesis then, this pattern is how the entire creation is explained to us. It's not just, here's one plot of land in the middle of the Middle East. No, this is the way the creation of the world is explained. God conquers the forces of chaos And then sets up his temple, which is a garden in Eden. And we looked at all of this. Um, (laughs) And so I won't go back and repeat, but all of the imagery used in the garden of Eden is priest imagery. It's temple imagery that is used throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. Um, When the temple is built in 1 Kings 6, there are cherubim 
um, gourds, open flowers, and palms um, carved in the wood that covers the stone structure of the temple. Well, where in creation would you have seen gourds, open flowers, palms, and cherubim? It would have been in a garden. And so the temple itself was a reminder of this place when man once, you know, dwelt perfectly with the Lord. But after he conquers the forces of chaos and sets up his temple, i.e. Eden, then he puts his image in that temple, male and female, created in the image of God, so that the whole world could see the God who claimed this space for himself and is sharing it with the people who worship him. You see what I've done there? I've just overlaid a pattern of the way Genesis 1 and 2 describe the creation of the world as it relates to the way the ancient Near Eastern world believed that one nation conquered another. And so in several of the early episodes, like I said, of this podcast, we walked through how all of this works. And I, I won't um, bulk you down with more details there other than to say, if you forget what that is like, go back and re-listen. In Ephesians as a book, Paul is now explaining how God has done all of this again. This time, as the result of the fall, there are still dark forces at work in our world, corrupting all that God had originally made good. These are the rulers and authorities spoken about throughout the New Testament. But God in Christ has defeated them. And as a result of Jesus's resurrection, he is now exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. This is what Paul tells us in no uncertain terms in Ephesians 1 verse 21. Jesus has conquered every force of darkness in our world, and he has done so by willingly sacrificing himself for the sake of the world. So all of these rulers and authorities that are hell-bent on division, destruction, oppression, and exploitation, Jesus defeated. He triumphed over them when he willingly took upon all that brokenness and fault and shame onto himself on the cross. But then Paul goes on in chapter 2 of Ephesians to recount all that the Lord has done to make this happen. And you can read chapter 2 of Ephesians and notice a nice clean break there between the fact that God has united enslaved humanity back to himself and then he's united divided humanity um, against one another in the person of Jesus. So God has, has united humanity, which is slaved in the, in, enslaved in the grip and in the power of the evil one, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, making division and exploitation and oppression seem totally normal and reasonable in everyday life. Paul says the circumstances for mankind were so dire that man, in a sense, was literally dead. He had no other option but to choose from these options within this spirit of the, of the fallen world to choose and make decisions that were going to produce destruction. Maybe not destruction for them personally in the moment, but destruction for someone else. And then decisions that make us feel like the path to freedom is to choose this end up creating destruction for themselves later on. This was a terrible situation which God remedied in Christ by setting free those who were enslaved to Satan's grip in this way. But then in the second half of Ephesians, Paul talks about what this enslaving grip has done between people groups. 
So you have Jews who were God's chosen people who allowed themselves because of the work of the powers started to believe that they were superior to the other nations around them, that God called them to be unique. He called them to be special. He called them to be holy and to be separate and to be set apart so that his blessing could be extended to the nations. But Israel began to think that God's calling of of them and his blessings on them was because they were more special than the nations. And they started using, or rather the powers, took this position that Israel had, twisted it in their minds to make them think they were doing God's work by being isolationist, by being standoffish, by being judgmental and critical of the brokenness and fallenness of the nations around them instead of being the means by which God extended his blessing to the nations around them. And in fact, in the beginning of Ephesians 2.11 or Ephesians 2.12, Paul talks about the uncircumcision and the circumcision. And what he's doing there is he's explaining the fact that to the Jews, they identified themselves as the circumcision, the faithful people of God, and they referred to everybody else as the uncircumcision, right? That would be like referring to yourself as the faithful and referring to everyone else as the unfaithful. And right here in the book of Ephesians, Paul is showing how, how ethnic groups, racial differences, looking at yourself and looking at another people group and identifying how you are unlike one another is the work of the powers. And in Jesus, God has broken down this dividing wall of hostility and united seemingly opposing people groups into one. He's united divided humanity in the person of Jesus. But just like in Genesis, once a king conquers another domain, the first thing the people do is erect a temple in the honor of their God and then worship their God in that temple. Right. And so in Ephesians, much like in Genesis, God gathers around himself a people, but not to worship him in his temple, but who worship him as his temple. And in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, which wrap up chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul paints the church in the most beautiful picture of those who become this living place that God is filling by his spirit, but who are then becoming the kind of place where God would feel at home. For the purpose of what? For the purpose of blessing the world, to show the entire world the space over which God has just claimed and and invite the church to live out the reality of God's victory over these rulers and authorities in the way that they choose to conduct their community life. And so the rest of the book of Ephesians outlines for us exactly how this has happened, what the church should expect to face as a result of the Lord making this happen, and how the presence of the Holy Spirit offers the church hope for continuing to live out this new reality in the face of the defeated but very real cosmic forces still working against it and particularly at work in our world. Don't make the mistake of thinking that if Jesus defeated the rulers that they are no longer present. We don't believe that. We believe that Jesus has defeated the rulers and authorities of this present age and has invited us in to experience life in the age to come It's just that this age to come has started now. 
And I want to explain this over the course of several weeks, but I don't want to pour more on you than you can handle, and I'm not quite ready to articulate exactly how I want to explain it to you. And so I just wanted to present to you the thrust of the way Ephesians works. There are three distinct passages in Ephesians that speak about the rulers and authorities. The one that is probably the most famous is in chapter 6 where Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that's a culmination of several things that Paul is going to do throughout the book to explain why it is that our calling and what Paul is asking the church to do in the power of the Spirit, it finds so much resistance in the world. And it believe it or not, sadly, finds a lot of resistance even in the church. And I know that many people read Ephesians 6 as if Paul is talking to individual Christians about putting on the armor of God, and he's talking to individual Christians about the way that Satan tempts you towards sin. But I don't think we should read Ephesians 6 in that way because Paul's not writing to individuals. He's writing to a church a church that according to Ephesians 3.10 is putting God's glory and wisdom on display before the rulers and authorities, showing them that God has done what is practically impossible, and that is has having united seemingly irreconcilable groups, man to God and Jew with Gentile. And as the church faithfully lives out Jesus's work of having defeated the rulers, as the church maintains the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace, they testify to the rulers that those rulers and their divisive ways and their oppressive ways and their exploitative ways gain nothing in the world, but that Jesus's ways of reconciliation and of peace and of love and of hope have defeated the rulers and their divisive ways. And when the church, despite gender differences, despite age differences, despite ethnic differences, maintains the unity that the spirit created through their bond of peace, they testify to the rulers that God is in fact capable of doing what no earthly institution has ever been capable of doing. This is a testimony. This is our witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. Sadly, when the church turns passages like Ephesians six twelve into an individualistic call to fight against Satan, we miss the communal aspect of what it is that we are actually testifying to. And that's what actually crushes the testimony the most. Because God is not interested merely in individuals. He's looking at humanity as a whole, the societal, social, and moral breakdown of the entire world, and has come to restore all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. He's come to unite them all. And what the church is doing is seated right in the middle of that as the new humanity, as the new creation people over which God has conquered the forces of chaos and the forces of darkness, has liberated us, and has established us as his people to become his temple, 
the place where he feels at home, the place where he is free to rule and reign over this newly conquered domain, which is what? It's the entire globe. And it begins in this small places that we call our church. I love this kind of thing. This kind of thing gets me up in the morning because it's a reminder of all that God has done before and what God is ultimately going to do in the future. And I want to walk through this in in upcoming episodes. I want to look at specific passages and what this teaches us about the character of God, why it's so important that the church thinks of itself as a community, not just as a gathering of individual Christians. Because the work that Jesus has done in defeating the rulers and authorities is he has taken what the rulers and authorities have done to corrupt the world and has said, I've defeated you and I've created a new humanity who in walking in my ways will continue to testify that I have defeated you. That's why it's so important to understand what these rulers and authorities do in the world. Because if we look right past the fact that they corrupt societies, that they fuel racist tendencies, that they overlook oppression and exploitation at work in social groups, then we don't see the gospel as an antidote to that. If we reduce fallenness in the world to human individual sin and choices only, then we only think that the answer that Jesus has come to provide deals with individual choices. Well, it does involve individual choices, absolutely. But if we look past these social breakdowns and how the powers and authorities twist social groups into seeing themselves as superior to other social groups, we will have any kind of category at all to understand what the church's role in the face of that should be. But Paul, I think, gives us a clear picture. And it's exciting to me when we can root that in the same way that the creation narrative is told to us. And this is, again, the kind of thing that I think the church needs. I think we desperately need to think in this way. I think we desperately need to process our reality in this way so that we have the eyes of faith, as Paul talks about in Ephesians 1, to see that this reality has happened and then to be able to see when we are opposed when social breakdowns don't work or uh, you know, a look at society doesn't pan out the way we imagine it would, we now have a lens through which to interpret it. And then we know what it is that Jesus did in the face of that kind of brokenness and therefore what he might be calling us as his people, as his body to do in the face of that brokenness as well. And so that's all the time I want to take for this week. I'm very thankful that you're continuing to listen in. Like I said, we'll spend several weeks looking at this. We'll dip in and out of Ephesians to look at other passages that help us to make the most sense of it. But this is an important topic, and it's one that I think we need to talk about more and more. And I will commend to you again Tim's book, The Drama of Ephesians. Um, This is outlining, as he said in his book, um, it's it's knowing what actors are involved, and it's... um, being willing to put together the gospel drama as we seek to live out our faithfulness to Jesus as a church, as a community. And again, I'm thankful to Tim for allowing me to read a chapter of his book last week. And um, 
I may just refer to it from time to time. Got a few articles that have come up recently from other authors that I may want to read, but we will continue to explore these themes as closely as we can and try to make the most sense of them as we go. So I'm really thankful for each of you who continue to tune in. I hope you have a fantastic week and I'll talk to you next time.